Let's get scratching. We got an explosive broadcast coming to you. Listen up. Sega games, just keep playing them. Sega! We're back. It's the Sega Bit Swing Report Show. Get ready for Sega interviews and news. Hello and welcome to the Sagabit Swing and Report Show. I'm Barry. With me is a special co-host, Javed, aka Akiat, who is a contributor for Sagabits, and he's also working on the game Brock Crocodile. Hello, Javed. Hello, Barry. How you doing? You're right. I'm great. I love that. Wow. Look at that enthusiasm. This is gonna be a this is gonna be a proper episode. Um, and then we also we are joined by our very special guest, Matt Phillips, who was the creator of Tanglewood. Well, what, what roles would you assign yourself? Everything? Uh, pretty, pretty much. Um, apart from the, uh, the, the artwork and the music, uh, I, uh, I, of course, but, uh, yeah, everything else pretty much me. Okay. He's pretty much, he's pretty much God. Yes. God, God, Matt Phillips is joining us. And so Tanglewood, Tanglewood released just recently and it's released for the Mega Drive Genesis and also available on Steam. And this was following a successful Kickstarter campaign. Now, are there any other platforms that I missed? Uh, let me run through them. PC, uh, Windows, Mac, Linux, uh, Dreamcast. Oh, right. Yes. Mega Drive, Genesis, um, and hopefully if all goes to plan, Amiga 500. Okay. Ooh. Oh, that's really cool. So um, how's the Dreamcast development going? What's What's the plans for that? Um, it's a complete rewrite because um, obviously the the original is written in assembly language, uh, so it doesn't doesn't translate very well, mm. um, and it's too, too slow to run the emulated version. So uh, we're doing a complete rewrite now. Um, we've got most of the first chapter working, um, so it's coming along pretty considerably mm -hmm. uh, because the, uh, the the cartridges haven't shipped yet. So we've had a bit of downtime waiting for all the parts for that. So I've been able to blast through the Dreamcast version. Oh, it's nice. coming really well. Is there anything extra you're going to put on the Dreamcast version, or is it going to be like completely identical to the Mega Drive version? No, it's full rewrite. So we're doing a, a bit of redesign work as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, that, that hopefully there'll be an extra level, at least. Um, certainly extra boss fights. Um, I'd like to add some extra endings, things like that. Um, quite a lot, actually. More collectibles, more secret areas. I've got a big list of things to add to it. So yeah. before we dive into um, how you started, your past with gaming, uh, how would you describe Tanglewood? Because I'm I'm kind of waffling between platformer, puzzle game. What, what would you describe it as? It's a, a cinematic puzzle platformer, I guess. Okay. Uh, I, I usually get asked to, to compare it to other games. I'm not sure I've ever sat down and thought, actually, what is it in its own context? <laughs> Um, I, I I usually answer uh, another world. Abe's <laughs> Odyssey. Okay. Yes. Yes. I love that game. Um, so I'm curious, what games and consoles did you grow up with? Um, I started out on the Commodore 64. Um, I think my, my first game and favorite game was Boogie Boy. Oh, what was that? Um, it was a, a single player racing game. Um, Obviously, on on the C sixty four, it was quite a primitive racing game, but it was one I very fondly remember. Uh, I remember the the intro screen, the soundtrack. Um, most of the sound effects are still stuck in my head twenty odd years later. 
Yeah. So it gives um, it gives you the warm fuzzies when you revisit it. I'm sure. Yeah, I love the thing. Uh, what else? <laughs> uh, things like uh, ghosts and goblins, um, lots of puzzle games, that sort of stuff. I, I love the Commodore. Absolutely adore the thing. You still uh, have it? Yeah. Yes, I do. Um, it's not in the best conditions, but it still works. Mm. Um, we'll move on to Mega Drive next. Um, yeah, um, started out by uh, borrowing a Mega Drive from a family friend. And I uh, had a Sonic and the Terminator, I think. I think that were the only games I got. Uh, I remember rushing home from school as fast as I could to go and get more time with the thing. I think about two weeks later, it was ripped from my sobbing hands. And come back. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I had to wait till Christmas to get one of my own. Um, did you have a large library of games, or did you really stick to like a core amount for a good number of years? I had my core favorites. Um, mm-hmm. I had an embarrassing collection for such a diehard Sega fan. No, uh, that's that's understandable. I'm I'm with you there. I had a um, Sega Genesis from 1991 through to 1998, and it was the only Sega console I owned. And I probably had 15 games. <laughs> you know, and they kept me busy. So. Uh. I don't remember what I'm for. I had my Mega Drive. If it's from 1990 or maybe uh, I think maybe 1990, because I remember Revenge Sonic One was out yet. Mm. Um, but uh, what happened was, unfortunately, by the end of it, sadly, my mom decided, like, oh, we've got the Sega Saturn now, so uh, you can give this to your cousin. Like, what? No, don't give it to my cousin. <laughs> but obviously, as a seven-year-old, I can't really argue much back to my mom. So it was like, no, my Mega Drive. Why? <laughs> That's that's awful. So got mine. So so Matt, what led from you enjoying video games to wanting to develop video games, and what was your first project that you worked on? It all sort of um, happened all together, really. I mean, I'd, once I got bored of playing the games on my Commodore, um, I started flicking through the manual, and uh, it was back in the days where um, it came with instructions on how to program. You right there? Hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because um, Europe obviously had a big uh, like homebrew community for indie dev- indie devving even back in the nineties, um, which is quite interesting. That it, you know, it was it back then that you go into it, or more like towards the two thousands. Um, I'd, I'd wanted to do it since childhood, really, um, all the way since programming like basic text adventures and things on my Commodore. Um, I never really made anything big or memorable. It was all just small little things. Um, I wasn't very good at it either until I got into my late teens. Mm. Uh, it's definitely something I always wanted to do, something I always dabbled with throughout my life. And um, I, I tried and tried, failed and failed. It was only until I, I got around university where I started to get the hang of it. So what what kind of... Um... What, what what resources were out there to learn how to do this? Because I can't even imagine back then thinking how I could get into this. What what sort of uh, paths did you have in front of you? Um, in the early days, not a lot. There were things like um, printouts from magazines. If you remember when the listings used to be printed in magazines, uh, things like basic ski games and stuff like that. So you take the magazine home, type in all the listings, hope you didn't make a mistake, and then it would work. Oh, wow. Mostly from that, it was trial and error. So then you change something to see what happened and um, just experiment, really. Um, I I lived out in the country, so we didn't have, I didn't have many friends close who also did this kind of thing. We didn't have a library or anything like that to get books out. So um, I was sort of on my own um, until we moved into a a town. 
um, where I had access to a library and things like that. And I borrowed a lot of books on microcomputers and things like that. And uh, I, I think the internet changed it. Um, I, I learned of the existence of C++. Um, I started dabbling with some basic C++ and things like that. And uh, one of the big tools that really helped was something called Dart Basic, which was a DirectX version of Basic. So you could have basic 3D models on screen, all textured and lit, and then uh, press buttons to move things around, stuff like that. And um, I, I made so much stuff in Dart Basic, it really helped. Um, so probably the biggest tool that, that, that helped it kick off properly. And so Tanglewood, was that your first game from start to finish to publishing? Uh, no. Uh, after university, I joined Traveller's Tales. That's right. And um, I worked on many, many, many Lego games, um, 13 of the things, I think. Oh, wow. Wow, uh, wow. And on one movie, um, I wrote some of the special effects tech for a, a film they were working on, too. So I got my name on that as well. Um, oh, wow. I then moved on to Crytek. Uh, worked on Homefront the Revolution, okay. um, and, and then I started my Kickstarter and I moved on to my own thing. So I'd had quite a lot of AAA experience uh, with modern tools, modern languages, um, but as, as far as assembly language for a 16-bit console was concerned, I sort of had to start again, really. Mm. Mm. Back to the drawing board. I had to unlearn a load of bad habits and things that wouldn't have helped me. Maybe yeah, because uh, like. Sorry to interrupt. I was like, because obviously nowadays, you know, we've got so much extra power when it comes to a console that you can be a bit lazy and like, I don't need to optimize this so much. But when you're going straight back to the Mega Drive, you probably have to be more mindful of how much memory you're actually using. Yeah, a lot of mistakes as well. A lot of getting it wrong. Um, try something out. It uses up all the memory and crashes and burns. <laughs> so lower level, then lower level, then lower level until you figure out where you can make your savings. So when you were working on those Lego games, was there like a progression in your uh, development and um, like lessons being learned from past games there? Or was it, was it much more of moving from game to game and kind of repeating the success you had? Um, yeah, there was a lot of repetition from game to game, especially when they're Lego games, because obviously it's a very similar format. Mm -hmm. Did you so, enjoy your time working on them? Oh yeah, so we did. Yeah. Um, it, it wasn't something like a reskin. You, you you look at two Lego games side by side and the same similar model, similar gameplay, um, and a lot of code was obviously reused. Um, but the engine was changing from game to game so rapidly. There was so much work to do, constantly, always challenges to to figure out, um, always new roadblocks with the next game. Um, mm. That and new platforms coming along all the time. I think I started on uh, started on a Wii game there. I and mean, we transitioned through to Wii U, um, to Switch. Um, what else do we have? There was the, the PS4 came out mm -hmm. through that time. The Xbox One came out through that time. The PlayStation Vita, I went through that transition. The 3DS. Um, so many wonderful platforms to port the engine to. There was always something to do. Now, did you work on the Dimensions games at all? Um, I'm afraid not, no. I was there during some of the early prototypes, but I didn't get to see much of it. Okay. Okay. Oh, that's cool. So um, so in regards to Tanglewood, I know Aki has quite a few questions about um, the gameplay, the development. So I kind of want to hand the reins over to him for some questions here. Yeah, thank you very much, Barry. Um, yeah, Matt, I was going to ask you, like, 
well, Tangle was a very, pretty interesting game. But what did you like draw inspiration from, like the design aspects for Tanglewood? Um, mostly uh, platformers. I grew up with platformers, my favourite genre, and I've been playing them all all through my life. Um, things like Sonic, Flashback, Another World. Mm. Um, I like cinematic platformers with incidental moment-to-moment gameplay. That's why I really like the, the Delphine. Delphine. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Their games, anyway. Right. Uh, yeah. Because, uh, because all, when I was sorry, sorry to interrupt. You carry on. Um, all the way through PS1 era. So things like uh, School Monkeys was one of my favourites there. Um, well, sort of play Abe's Odyssey, uh, Heart of Darkness, um, and lots of modern ones as well. I really like um, uh, Play Dead's games, Limbo and Inside, that sort of stuff. When I was playing through, it was like because it did feel as well that. Um, I'm not sure. Did you get any inspiration for stuff like Fantastic Dizzy as well, or uh, uh, any other, say, European platformers? Because it did feel like I was playing. So like, this feels actually very British in its design. Uh, how how it's designed itself? Yeah, um, pr- most likely. Yeah, I played a lot of Dizzy games. Um, what did I have? There was a, a Spectrum game I had, which I think was Dizzy. This was this was a. Uh, this is going to jog my memory a bit because I don't remember much of my Spectrum days. Mm. Um, yeah, uh, lot, lots of British games because obviously everything came on tape back then and you could only get it from local markets and things like that. So uh, the only games we really had there were British ones. You'd be lucky to import something from outside. Yeah, yeah that's, that's true because, like I said, it's, it's interesting just seeing it because it's like when, I, when you're playing games from back then you can see there's a clear different mindset in how the japanese developers made their games and how the british developers uh made their games so i felt like oh this definitely feels pretty british but when it comes to the art direction were you looking at stuff like sonic to like come up with it or you're looking at again maybe british stories uh or media to come up with how you want it to look um it, it was mostly games um but i watched a lot of tv as a kid lots of cartoons things like that mm. um i can't think of much of that that had an influence really um it was all all games mm. um I, I was especially fond of the disney platformers uh, things like lion king Pope that's Pond, yeah <laughs> uh, there's probably a lot of influence from those obviously i watched all the films but the, the actual inspiration came from the games themselves and their formula and how they all worked yeah, I was telling Javed before we were recording that the game, the one game it really reminded me of as soon as it started was The Lion King with obviously the the trees and it's um, it doesn't feel like your typical kind of Mario or Sonic platformer where it's very clear this is where you stand, um, very flat, bricked kind of uh, Mario Maker sort of layouts, if that makes sense. It was much more natural and it also reminded me of Echo the Dolphin a bit. Yeah, um, a, a lot of people say that uh, when when it comes up. Um, yeah, well, the, the, there's a lot of curves in there, lots of curved branches and trees and things like that. Um, and certainly the animation style, because the, the run animation of Nim was heavily inspired by Simba uh, from The Lion King. Mm. Um, I, think we, I think we did a, a frame test originally of Simba to see how it was going to work. Um, yeah, so that, that, that worked out really well, taking inspirations from Lion King. Right, yeah, it's it's quite good. Um, I was going to ask you because obviously you worked with Traveller's Tale and uh, Dilt Deep, 
silver, were you able to take like experience that you gained design? Were you working mainly as a programmer, or did you do any designing of those uh, the Lego games or Homefront as well? And were you um, able to like take it into Tanglewood? Uh, I was mostly a programmer, but I was a, a rather opinion programmer. If I wanted some <laughs> designing, but I try and I try my best to to force its way in there. Um, yeah, I I I did take a lot of um, inspiration from how, especially processes, how how things were done there, um, how a design would go from concept through up the ranks up into prototype stage to actually make it in the game. Uh, mm. The kind things QA would test for, the kind of tweaks you'd have to make to level designs and things like that. Um, I, I took a lot on board from those two companies. And only so much of it can apply back to the 16-bit era, but there's still a fair chunk of stuff I'm going to build with me. Yeah, because, uh, that, I mean, obviously that this relates to my next question. I was going to ask you, like, because you're now obviously the director of the game. So you were able to take, you were you were able to see like your other uh, senior managers or, or the director of the project see how they handled it? Were you able to like put it into this game? And how did you find it? Um, sort of. Um, it, both companies were a bit chaotic when it came to um, who was responsible for precisely what. Um, mm -hmm. It was very much a team effort. Lots of people would have their fingers in lots of pies. Um, so I don't think there was any flat hierarchy or. Um, any sort of chain of command that was strictly adhered to. Um, it was more if somebody had a cool idea, all it took was the right person to listen to actually kick something into action. Um, and when you're working on your own, that's very different. If I have an idea that I want to try, I will put it in and I will try it, um, which, which is quite different when you're working for a team, especially a team as, as big as that. I think TT was pushing 200 employees at that point. Um, so yeah, very very different ways of working, but there there were bits of crossover here and there. Yeah, because obviously, I mean, with those teams, because they're so big, like you know, direct, immediate, next to your your colleague, you'll know who that is. But when you've got a team of two hundred and someone, you might have the artist all the way in the other side of the building, you don't even know who they are. So, but as now you're an indie developer, you know everyone who's. I mean, I, I think how how big roughly was your team size? Uh, five or six, I think. Um, depends on the point of the project. So uh, they were contractors, so they'd sort of come and go, really. Right. Yeah, because I noticed uh, Matthew Weeks, uh, Weeks, sorry, was one of your uh, pixelized, but he also did some designing on the game, wasn't it? Yeah, he, he did a lot of the level design. Uh, yeah. Obviously, with with such a small team size, if he's got an idea, he'll just email me. I'll give it a try. Um, so pretty much everybody chipped into design at some point on some level. Yeah, um, yeah Matt Weeks had experience on uh, Freedom Planet as well. Um, he did the artwork for that. Um, and yeah. I think he had some level design input there too. So I think he's already had experience. Um, reason reason I remember his name is because I had him work on Brock for a few couple of levels as well. So it's like, oh, okay. So I see Matt is still getting around as well. Um, but yeah, so like I said, you've got the you've got the ability to like oversee everything as a director um and you've, you've said you found it slightly less chaotic than your other roles because you're like overseeing everyone together um have you learned something new towards it as as the director and like if you take it into your next project um yeah i've learned to not do so much yourself um absolute nightmare i'm gonna hire a hire a full team next time and try and offload a bit more work 
Um, it's been such a stressful thing. Um, I'd, I'd like to retake control of as much as I can because I'd like to design these games in my vision. Um, but in, in practice, it just doesn't work. It gets you really stressed out. The game takes twice as long as it needs to. Um, and uh, other people have a lot better ideas, it seems. So, because okay. um, yeah. it's, 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 um, it's interesting you say that. It's interesting you say that because when I came, when I was first deciding it, like way back in 2011, I'm like, no, I want to do everything myself. And then as I went along, it's like, wait, I'm not an artist, nor am I a musician. This stuff isn't as good as it should possibly probably be. Uh, yeah, and I can. Yeah, I had to rework a few of the arts and uh, get different tracks in as well. Uh, and it's like, I just mainly enjoy doing level design. So it's like, at first, because obviously you want to feel like, because it's obviously the project is very personal to you. So you want to make sure you've got a hand on everything. Yeah, there, but... there is a, a moment of clarity where it just clicks. Hang on a minute. This is the, the most stressful and inefficient way I could be doing this. <laughs> what am I doing this for? It's, it's, it's interesting because... As video game, the when the press is involved, they always try to say, "Look, this one person made this game, like Hideo Kojima. He's behind everything." But when you actually go into the process, you find that wait, there are like fifty other people who are involved in coming up with some of these ideas, but they never get any of the press. So we kind of get this false narrative on how games are actually designed, where we think it's one person's vision, but the bigger the game gets, it's it's now multiple people's vision. Yeah, I don't think solo dev is ever ever really solo dev. Um, you, you could probably make 85, 90% of the game, but the last 10%, it won't even get released unless you get outside help for it. So whether directly or indirectly, there are always outside influences. There are always people cheering you on. There are people doing little favors for you or finding information for you. Um, I don't think there's any such thing as solo development purely. Mm. Uh, my next, another question I wanted to ask you is because obviously you're working on the Mega Drive and there are some restrictions. What were like some gameplay elements or some stage gimmicks that you might you needed to drop after you like wait, hang on a second, this isn't going to work at all. Um, yeah, one of the big things, but this was more a performance thing, was buoyancy, because um, there's a lot of water in the game, and I want a lot of things floating, and I had a lot of mechanics based on the fact that fuzzles could float, or uh, boulders or crates could float, and there were certain ways of pushing them around, um, and I had a load of puzzle design around that, um, but it, it was quite an expensive thing to do on the CPU, because it's only, it's only 7 megahertz processor. Um, mm. One of the big things eating up performance, so unfortunately that had to go. I had to redesign it all. Um, That's just one example, but yeah, there was a lot of stuff that had to be reworked or cuts because it just wasn't working, either from a performance standpoint or memory standpoint. That was probably a bigger deal, actually. Um, so so little space for anything there. Yeah, because like when I reviewed the game, I was like, you can't necessarily think about it like, oh, why didn't it do this or that because it's it's like it is actually a game that's meant to be for the 90s early 90s so you can't say oh why isn't there this type of effect or why don't you just do this instead it's like you have to take i had to take my mindset back into the 90s and think all right let me think of some other games that released at around this sort of time frame and review it as such um and 
even then, it's like some games like Sonic. I couldn't really look at Sonic and think, why couldn't you do it like that? Because when you read the development history of Sonic, like, oh, Yuji Naga only slept for like five hours a day for 11 months straight. It's like, uh, I'm pretty sure you didn't have the same sort of uh, negative lifestyle as he did, did you? Um, well, you say that. <laughs> oh, no. Um, the, the, the problem is back then that sort of thing was glorified. Um, it would it would have been written in the magazine because they'd have thought that was cool. Yeah, this guy's so dedicated. He only gets four or five hours of sleep a night. Look at him go. Um, you too, kids, can aspire to do this one day. <laughs> <laughs> and I think in, in recent years, everybody's gone, hang on a minute. <laughs> this is really stupid. Everybody's making mistakes. Everybody's showing up late for work. What is going on? <laughs> Um, so yeah, um, I, I did do a little bit of that, but it's not good for you. It shouldn't be glorified. Um, it makes for a worse game. Don't do it. Um, yeah. I just, just now and again, I, I get carried away. Um, and, I, and I think I can do that for the better of the game. And then for the next few days, I have to clear up the mess I left when I did it. Right. Yeah. Cause obviously if you, if you like work late, like in two or 3 AM, you might be making, you might be doing something in the code. And without realizing, you've just done something that's going to like the next day. You come back like, hang on a second, <laughs> this that's not a good thing. Why did I do that? And it's like even minor issues because like when it comes to like uh, the capital letter N or the lowercase N, it makes a big difference without you realizing. In that middle of the night, you don't understand why is this code not working. But it's yeah, usually just a miss. beyond a certain point of exhaustion, you're just writing bugs, not code. Yeah. I had a question um, from the player side. I've been playing games for years, and there's this password system. How does that work? Like, I know it's a string of weird letters, but how do those letters dictate where I'm dropped back into the game and and inventory being a certain amount and such? Is that um, is that something you could explain to me? <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, the the clue there is that the letters only run from zero to nine, and then A to F. Um, so it's actually hexadecimal you're writing there. Um, that, 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 those are raw bytes. That's raw data. There's eight characters you enter, uh, which is eight nibbles of data. So um, four bytes, eight bytes. I'm too tired for this mess. It's hard. Um, <laughs> uh, no, eight characters you write. So that's four bytes of memory. And um, that's all all packed in. So uh, each one of those de hexadecimal nibbles will be things like the number of fireflies in the current act. Mm. Well, well the, uh, up to three firefly counts because you've got um, acts one, two, and three for each level. And um, so it'll store you have six fireflies on act one, two fireflies on act two, um, and you're on the third level now, so zero fireflies. Um, it'll store the level ID. Mm -hmm. uh, so there are 28 levels in the game. Um, each one's assigned an ID, so it'll store in there. You're on level 15. Um, and at the end of it is a checksum. So you add all bytes together, and that reaches a certain number. So if you enter the wrong password, the checksum won't match up, and it won't let you load that level. Um, that makes it really difficult to either make a mistake when you're entering it or for somebody to just guess a password and try and get in. Interesting. Yeah, because I always thought it was kind of unfair that, you know, reviewers and especially people doing videos now where, you know, like angry video game nerd and such, they'll they'll bitch about the password system. But I'm like, there's got to be a reason why it's, you know, that many characters. I think the only real thing to criticize would be 
how they handle entering it, like uh, not allowing you to move the cursor from one end of the screen to the other immediately. Um, I thought your password screen was well handled, though. I liked that going downwards and you could go pick each character at a time rather than typing it out with a keyboard on the screen. I appreciated that. Uh, the uh, the um, vertical layout rather than horizontal was actually a bug. <laughs> but, oh, really? I, I liked whoa. it. Yeah, the, the QA guys came back and said, can you leave it like this? It's so much faster than uh, when it used to work properly. Huh. Wow. Well, there oh, you go. Thank goodness for bugs. I, yeah, I know. It's like, oh, that's that goes back to indie devs. It's not a bug. It's a feature. It's a feature, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I... I I, I did fix the bug, but then I, I reworked the UI to, to look like that mm. properly. Because um, that's that's what QA told me was working best, so that's what we get. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Um, oh, uh, one other thing is, uh, is the story itself. Because um, when I started playing it, I thought this was just going to have a very normal have-to-defeat-the-bad-guy type of story. Uh, I don't want to spoil too much of the game, but uh, there is an emotional... Uh, point that it gets to, and it's like, oh, everything's different now. I I was not expecting this at all. So, like, what what kind of like inspired you to go down this that that type of route? Um, because it's obviously a big thing when something. Uh, I don't want to say when it happens, but it's like you didn't see it coming. That was uh mostly Limbo's fault, I think. I wanted a dark, moody platformer that lulled you into a false sense of security. That it was going to be. A nice fun romp through the world of Harlequin Forest. <laughs> Turns out, no, it's not. It suddenly gets really nasty. Um, I I wanted something a little bit different. I didn't want a, a happy, bright mascot platformer like Mario or Sonic. Um, I wanted something with a little bit of grit to it. Um, and you can only go so far by just throwing more enemies at the player or reusing the time of day trick again. Um, to try and keep the whole thing fresh, I had to do something a little bit drastic to try and keep people on their toes and and just sort of refresh the game halfway through so it turns into something a little bit different. Yeah, because like you first think it comes in, you're thinking, ah, oh, so it's like a fox. I'm I'm assuming it's like Sonic, and then like midway through, like, oh wait, this is actually Watership Down. Oh no. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess the. Uh... British aspect comes back into that a bit. We grew up with cartoons like that. Yeah, I know. It's it's funny because we have a lot of cartoons that are unassuming. It's like, wait, no, this is actually more horrible than you thought, kids. And, you know, it's interesting, too, because you were bringing up earlier how the game, um, Aki was saying, uh, Javed, that the game plays, you know, similarly to these classic games. However, there is that darker element that I don't think had this game been going through the normal processes, you know, like something, someone like Tom Kalinske might look at it in America and go, nah, this won't, this won't do. Please change this. You know, they'll, uh, there would definitely be some executive interference. I think um, yeah, if it was, yeah. Would you, would you push back? Like, let's say you were in that setting. Would you push back and say, I'm not finishing this game. If you don't let me go ahead with this, would that be like a make or break for you? Um, I think now, with my experience, knowing what I know, I would say no. Uh, we we finish this game my way, or I find another publisher. Right. Probably when I was starting out, I probably wouldn't have the balls to do that. I just sort of bend over and let them change anything, really. Uh, it would have, uh, like, sunglasses on the main character or something. Like <laughs> yeah, something like that. Uh, like, oh. The Simpsons-style intervention. Yeah. 
Yeah, because yeah, it's interesting because like you had EA when they were working with uh, Insomniac, I think was it, and it was the game was called Fused or something. It was like a third-person shooter. It had it had a lot of style when they first showed the trailer, uh, and everyone was like, "Oh yeah, I love the look of this game." Um, and then when they released another trailer six months later, they like watered down all the character that made the game unique, and it became like just generic third-person shooter number 2007. Um, and it's, it's interesting because it's like you're trying to put, your, obviously, your own personal touch onto the game. So it's like you don't want a publisher to start interfering and saying, look, so-and-so have said they don't like this. You have to change it. Um, but now you definitely feel like you made the right choice seeing as how people are responding. It's like, you know what? That was actually a good idea you did. Um, have you found that with like a lot of few of the players who played the game? Um, I, I guess it depends what kind of position you're in. Obviously, if you're very, very much relying on their their uh, paycheck, mm. um, there's only so much leverage you've got. Um, yeah. I, I think my advice would be is to make sure your contract is watertight before you even start. Make sure that they can only intervene if it's a legal issue or a licensing issue, um, or they've got some very solid market research that says doing it this way would uh, very seriously help. Um, but otherwise, if, if they're paying somebody to design a game, they should pay them to design the game. They should just you know, leave it alone. Yeah. Oh, I'll say offer you like a billion pounds, then you'd be like, yep, go ahead, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, every man's got his price, I guess. <laughs> oh. Right. Um, what's that? Sorry, I've just lost uh, my, my train of thought here for a second. Uh, yeah, the next thing I was going to ask is like, the game itself, finishing it because this is like your, is it your first indie game you've made? Uh, first indie game I've finished. Yeah, uh, so, I've, I've tried so all sorts over the years, lots of experiments. Uh, mm -hmm. Maybe even a couple of levels out of a few, but uh, real life always got in the way. Yeah, um, I so, the only one I finished is because I ran the Kickstarter and I had funding for it, and then I was able to quit my job and concentrate on this full time. Yeah, because um, how has the reception been so far for it? Because it's like you got you were on the BBC, uh, you, uh, you got a segment on that, and then now you've probably got a lot of people coming up to it because you just went to EGX recently, wasn't it? Yeah. And so how have you found the reception so far? What does it mean? What does it personally mean to you? It's absolutely fantastic. Um, I can't believe it's taken off like this. Um, all the way since the Kickstarter, um, the Kickstarter flew through uh, the uh, the asking price. Um, I had so much press coverage, uh, this BBC News thing. That was absolutely terrifying, by the way. Because <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I noticed you've got, a, you've got a tattoo for the Sonic 2 final boss, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, he got a lot of footage of my tattoo. <laughs> he's got as much of that into the interview, I think. Um, yeah, so many. I've had things like uh, I've had Eurogamer talk to me, um, Kotaku, um, loads of big gaming news sites, um, lots of people coming up to me during events. I got filmed by the Gadget Show last week. It's just been absolutely enormous. I can't believe it, it, it's happened like this. I, I knew that what I was doing was a little more interesting than your average indie pixel platformer because it was developed in the original style using the original tools of the 90s and it actually runs on a real cartridge on the real hardware i, I knew i'd get a couple of articles about it based on that alone mm -hmm. but people really like this mm -hmm. people 
people really want this and they want more of this. Um, I, I just didn't realize what kind of audience there was out there for this. I thought it'd be a neat thing. It's not. <laughs> I've sold out of cartridges. I'm struggling to make more. Because so, yeah, obviously the UK always had like a really strong scene when it comes to like the Sega Mega Drive. Have you like found it like replicated that somewhere maybe in Brazil? Because I know Brazil's got a really strong Sega fan base over there as well or like other countries. Um, yeah, the result for the... The, the response from Brazil has been huge. There's been a lot of articles out there. Obviously, Tech Toy's still alive and well over there. Mm -hmm. uh, they're still making Mega Drives over there. They've got their own revision of it. Um, huge in Brazil. Um, the only problem with Brazil is it's really difficult to get my cartridges into the country. Yeah, uh, because obviously they've, they've got the whole issue with tax. I mean, they, they tax video games like crazy over there. Yeah, no, that's, that's really bad, that. Um, I'd like to try and talk to Tech Toy and see if we can get it manufactured over there so that we can... Mm -hmm sell in Brazil properly. Um, I get a lot of people emailing me, ask if there's a better way they can get hold of the game. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, there's not a lot I can do at the oh, moment. Would you be I mean, open to it being included on a plug-and-play? Yeah, certainly. Um, I spoke to App Games um, earlier on in the year uh, to try and secure something from that, but obviously with this whole uh, Mega Drive mini thing going on. Of course. Uh, it's been really difficult to get hold of anybody. And recently, I think they dropped App Games. Mm-hmm. Um, like um, all mentions of Sega have been removed from their site, put it that way. Ooh. Okay, no. okay I didn't know that. They've just been like erased. Yeah. Uh, it just looks like Sega have sacked them off completely. Oh, boy. Um, oh, boy. I'll, I'll, I'll hold my tongue on that game's machines and why Sega may have done it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, it's it's sad for the for people at Act Games, but at the same time, for us as consumers of who buy these Sega games, like, ah, uh, yes, I can finally look forward to proper emulation. Hopefully, fingers crossed. <laughs> Your words. Was, um... Yeah, sorry, my words. Oh no, I'm, I made a powerful enemy out there. I, I think it was a case of fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Because um, they came out with two revisions of the thing, and I was so excited for the second one, I ran out and bought it. And no, it's, it's just at games being at games again. Um, after, so next, another one I was going to ask you, and obviously this relates back to um, uh, back to when we were talking about if an executive like Mendel with the design of Tanglewood, uh, what was the most important elements for the game itself, and that that will that you'd say your red lines you can't change this at all. Um, mostly the movement. Um, I played a lot of games as research uh, from the sixteen bit days. One of the things that really stood out as being harsh was the movement style. Um, very few of these games had things like smooth acceleration and mm. uh, high velocity running and things like that. Um, it, it, it didn't feel right when you walk, run, and jump. Mm -hmm. um, Sonic was probably the most fluid. I mean, it's got, got a bit of acceleration when you move. You can get up to high velocity. Uh, the jump velocity just, just feels right. Everything just feels right when you play Sonic. So I had a load of games playing alongside mine, and I was there tweaking values, trying to get movement right um, to, to match some other 16-bit platforms at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and every time it just didn't feel right. They, they all felt too too sluggish or 
um, just just not smooth at all. Almost robotic, rather, isn't it? Like you press yeah. the button and like yeah, you're moving one pixel forward or two pixels forward, and it doesn't seem right. Because it's an interesting you mentioned that. Because when I first played it, I was like thinking, this is slightly uh, the, the it felt slightly uh, slippery, but it was like at the same time it reminded me more like a Sonic platformer because uh, I just finished off uh, Donkey Kong Tropical Freeze, but that game has like no momentum at all. Like, yeah, you can go forward and keep the moment going. And basically, as soon as you release the buttons, like, Donkey Kong will stop and he will just drop straight onto the floor. There's nothing that will necessarily carry you completely forward unless you're pressing the buttons. And yeah. if there is, it's like you've only got it through the stop. And it doesn't feel necessarily natural either. And it's interesting because I, I feel it's almost like how Sega designed their platformers and how Nintendo designed their platformers. So with Sega, they added a little bit more extra chaos with the momentum. But when it came to how Nintendo designed it, it's like with Mario, he's very start and stop. As long as you let go of the button, he will just drop onto the floor. Or with Sonic, you'd like have to, if you're right, moving right, you have to start hitting left or else you're going to keep going right no matter what. Yeah, you have to hit the brakes. Um, yeah, I, th- I think that's probably the most important core mechanic. And it's the most important core mechanic for any game, I think. Hmm. It's, it's the one thing you do throughout the game from beginning to end is, is move. Uh, so why why aren't developers spending more time improving movement, trying to get that to feel right? Because it, it can make or break a game if you get that wrong. Yeah, because I've noticed, again, this goes back to how Japanese developers also design their games uh, versus Western uh, developers. Like with Little Big Planet, for example, that was, a, it was pretty popular, but it's like when you play the controls of it, the, the movement for Little Big Planet is so imprecise. You kind of wonder, wait, how did this become a million seller? Um, but when you compare it to, like, even say something like uh, the, say, Sonic Unleashed, the movement compared to other platformers is a little bit more precise. Yeah, Sonic is going really fast, so it might seem difficult to control him, but that's because he's going really fast. He doesn't just stop as soon as you let go of the button. Yeah, m- moving around needs to be fun in its own right. If, mm. if you just take control of Nim and you jump around from tree to tree and things like that, that needs to feel fluid. It needs to feel fun. Without without any other mechanics in the Sonic alone, just running around is fun. Hmm. Um, you, you could take all the bad nicks, all the rings out of Sonic. Just running around is still going to be fun. You have to get that right from the start. Also, this was another question I wanted to ask because obviously with the Mega Drive screen size, it you didn't have widescreen support, unfortunately. Um, so when it came to like designing a stage, you had to obviously be a bit more mindful about Nims like how much she's going to skid across the screen, didn't you? Um, but if it was a widescreen, would you like think that I'd be a bit more comfortable with how the levels themselves are designed? Um, yeah, with, with the widescreen version, we're also going with a new camera design as well. Because um, mm. now we've got a bit more room to play with. We can we can move the camera around and uh, um, try and make more use of the available space. Um, mm. I did have another camera design for the Mega Drive version um, where it have a small window where you move left or right. It didn't move the camera until you hit a certain threshold. Um, we, we experimented with a few designs like that, and none of them really worked. So we just returned to the uh, Sonic style, rigid in the middle. Mm. Uh, that seemed to work better. Um, but for the Dreamcast version, I want to revisit then that, and I want to see what what else we can do with the camera. Um, try and make more use of that space. Yeah, because um, it's, it, it was quite because like um, I think it was level five it was the graveyard or something like the the lights it was like 
you only saw the shadows. Um, Deadwood. Deadwood, that's it. Yes, that's right. Because at some points in that level, it's like the, you can't really tell where you're jumping towards because obviously you can't really do anything about it because the screen resolution, you can't like randomly say, oh, no, the Mega Drive's got widescreen support all of a sudden. So you, you, you probably had a few situations like that where you're like, um, you had to like be mindful of can the player take the leap of faith uh, to get to that other platform? Yeah, blind jumps is something I'd like to fix for the next one, um, either by changing some level design or uh, better use of the camera. Mm-hmm. Um, Sonic had a lot of that. There's a lot of places yeah. in Sonic you can just drop down, there'll be a badnik there or the spike. Yeah. Um, I guess in Sonic's defense, he could be spinning and that will kill whatever enemies down there where you can't do that with Nim. Yeah, because uh, you've got now. Well, thankfully, because you had the um, the re-release for Sonic 1 and 2 uh, that Christian Whitehead did, where they added widescreen support. Like I remember playing the original Sonic, and I did hit, hit Badniks quite a few times because I couldn't see them coming. But now with the widescreen support, it's like, ah, oh, they're miles ahead of me. I can kill them straight away. Um, so it's, it's interesting just to see how like the default screen size and widescreen makes such a massive difference on these games. Yeah. So, I mean, we spoke about that. So let's talk about, like, your actual process with the Mega Drive. Has there, found, has there been something cool you found out along the way? Um, well, plenty. Um, it was my first time coding for the system, so pretty much everything I learned was was new and cool to me. Um, I'd not worked with a system that had fixed frame rate before, so no floating point, delta time calculation, things like that. It was all done with fixed frames. Um, I'd not worked with hardware that had um, hardware scrolling before. Um, I'd not worked with a tile-based system before um, with separate sprite system. Um, it was all new to me, and every time I learned something new, I thought it was I thought it was interesting and entertaining to to learn. Right, there are also like some parts because when Nim he like gets into um, the what the orbs called fuzzles was it? Yeah. Yeah. Like when he changes colors, uh, once he activates one of them, did you have to like be mindful that? Because I remember in the Sonic games, like if they had to change the color palette for Sonic when he went supersonic, something else might change. Did something like that happen with Tanglewood? Yeah, all, all the way through development, um, you have to really design for that. Um, you have to reserve palettes for certain objects, or you have to pack them in. Um, it was one of the reasons why um, the checkpoints change color as Nim changes color. Um, oh, the, the belly of the checkpoint lights up when you hit a checkpoint, but that's using yeah. the same palette as Nim. Um, so if, if Nim hits a fuzzle and changes yellow, the checkpoint will change yellow too. All um, right. I thought that was done purposely by you, but it wasn't a hardware limitation. Uh, yeah, it was originally a hardware limitation, but I, I ran with it. Again, a feature, not a bug. <laughs> in the end, uh, because of that Deadwood level. Uh, because there were fuzzles in that Deadwood level, but Nim was black. Um, you mm. can't see what color the fuzzle was. Um, so if I put a fuzzle nest next to a checkpoint and you'd hit the checkpoint, um, you you pick up the power and the checkpoint changes color. So you can see it's a yellow one. Um, so I, I left that in for that reason, uh, for that level. Interesting. That's it. It's always cool when you like have these little. You find out from the developer like it wasn't really meant to be a feature, but it actually worked out in the end. Because uh, like when you when I'm reading the development history of Sonic and like they find out some things by accident, 
So it's always interesting. Um, and obviously, the, like, so my naturally, my last question was going to be like, what are you planning to do from here? Like, you're obviously talking about Tanglewood on the Dreamcast, but after that, are you looking for a Tangle? Are you thinking about Tanglewood two, or maybe even a new IP for the Mega Drive, mm-hmm. or maybe on other certain other console, Sega consoles? Um, I've got dev hardware for other consoles. I've got a 32X kit. Uh, I've got Saturn kits, um, but they're notoriously difficult to program for, um, and it lessens my audience even more. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd like to, for the next game, I'd, I'd like to make a little bit of money. Mm-hmm. I think that'd be really nice. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, everyone likes money, don't they? Not going to complain. Um, so, um, if, if that's the case, will you think of like maybe not designing it as like a Sega Mega Drive game first, or rather it's going to be a PC game available for the PS4, Nintendo Switch, Xbox One, or whatever new consoles are coming out? No, at least for the next game, I'm going to do Mega Drive again. Um, I've already started a next game. Um, it's going to be a sci-fi shooter with hover mechs. Oh, wow. Ooh, okay. Um, it's exclusive. It's, yeah, and it's very, very early stages at the moment. Um uh, I, I guess that leads back into we we're talking about movement and getting movement fluid. I think the very first thing I've been trying is to get this hover mech to feel good to control mm-hmm. and make sure it's nice and fast and responsive with smooth acceleration and things like that. So right now all I've got is this hovercraft on screen and I'm going to spend right. getting the movement right. I'm so, going to do tweaks for that. How long do you think it's going to like before like you can start talking about the game and showing it off? Do you think and maybe a potential uh, release date? Not sure at all yet. I'm going to try and um, well, I'm hoping sales of the first game will give me enough to put together a prototype team. Uh-huh. Um, so I can hire. I'm, I'm going to see if Matthew Weeks wants to come back on board. Um, the composer wants to come back on board, and we'll try and make a demo for it. Um, and if that works out. Um, we'll we'll put it out in the public and see what they think of it, and see if we want right. to take it further. I've no so idea what the time scale is going to be for that, but it's all it's all happening slowly. So, so you think maybe potentially you might return to Kickstarter and see as long as the audience wants it, we can get run with this. Yeah, um, I'll, I'll c- turn to Kickstarter if we have to, if we don't make enough money to cover it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that'll that'll be ne- necessity only, I think. Um, it's a very stressful thing to do Kickstarter. Uh, yeah. For 18 months, you've got 900 people to answer for, um, and it, it's just, it's just really stressful knowing that you, you yeah. have so many people again uh, almost two years. Yeah, because obviously, you know, a lot of people who do invest in these games are looking at from the outside. They don't really understand how stressful indie development is, and they usually get tired responses like, "Oh, this, this developer's so lazy," and it's like, "Oh, we're not lazy. It's just..." very very difficult to manage all these things at once there's a lot to it and it's extremely stressful over a very long period of time um so if i can afford to do it without kickstarter then will but uh that that, that's still a safety net if i need to use it and we're also talking about a prequel to tanglewood Um, obviously you played the game you've seen the story i won't spoil it for your listeners but uh there's there's a lot i want to wrap up there uh, yeah, because I mean, obviously, if if you come up with a well, a Tanglewood Zero in this case, definitely I'd be like interested to try it out again, because like ah, that was uh, when I first played, I was like yes, because it's a Mega Drive game, because Mega Drive is my favorite console, so that got me hyped. But by the end of it, it's like ah, oh, okay, I want to see more of this world and the the lore in it. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna touch on that. I've got 
so many documents with unused bits of story, uh, cutscene designs and things like that. Um, there's a lot I'm going to put together uh, for a prequel. Um, there's some monsters there I've not used. Um, there's, there's even an entire level tile set that we haven't put in because we didn't have the space. Um, so, yeah. Well, I've, so I've got which are, yeah, because you've also said you're going to put like a new level in the Dreamcast version and a few more boss fights. Because it's like when I was playing the game, um, I was actually surprised by having you did have a few boss fights. I was like, oh, I didn't expect the pal- this because it was a puzzle platformer to have as many boss fights as it did, but I think you've got quite a few in there. You can never have too many boss fights. <laughs> I think I'd like one per chapter next time. Uh, I'll see if I can cram that in. We'll see. That's great. That's great. Um, that's pretty much all the questions I had for you. All right. Um, is there anything else you want to ask, Barry? Um, no, I think you did a fantastic job co-interviewing with me, Javed. And um, I just wanted to thank Matt Phillips for his time speaking with us. Tanglewood, it's out on Steam. It's on Dreamcast. and Or not Dreamcast. Yeah, it's going to be out on Dreamcast. It's out on Mega Drive. And it's uh, out on Genesis. Can people still pre-order the Genesis and um, Mega Drive carts? Yes, they can. If you go on our website... Okay, and that's tanglewoodgame.com, and you can also search Steam for Tanglewood. It's uh, $17.99 at the moment. It's a fantastic game, and the great thing is, and I didn't mention this, but you can play it on the Mac. And if, you, if you're if you a Mac owner like myself, not many games on Steam actually play on the Mac. So it was very, it made me really happy that I didn't have to switch over to the PC side, and I could just play the game. That was, that was very cool. And so, um, yeah, if Java doesn't have anything else to ask, um, I just want to thank Matt again for joining us. Thanks for having me. SegaBits. SegaBits is a fan site that is not in any way officially affiliated with Sega. Sonic the Hedgehog and all Sega-related trademarks are copyright Sega. All other featured trademarks are the property of their respective owners. Don't forget to check out SegaBits.com, and you can find us on all major social networks. Just search SegaBits. 